0: Hi everyone, welcome back. Uh, We have another episode for you today and we're going to be taking a deep look at what we're for and who we are. A little bit of an uh, existential crisis maybe is uh, initiating this episode, Tom.
1: We're having an alfresco podcast recording and we're going to have an existential crisis out here in the sun.
0: Why not? It's eh? not really the
1: weather for it, is it?
0: (laughs) It's not really the weather for it. So uh, it's a little bit of a patchwork quilt this episode, if you will. We have done some various recordings of various uh, kind of jigsaw pieces that we're going to pull together seamlessly, hopefully whereby we take a look at our personal philosophies for what we do but also kind of thinking a little bit more broadly about what the various different aspects of education for us in Wales but for you wherever you are what they're for um, and what they bring to the table so, Tom, do you want to kind of tell us why why we've arrived yeah. at this?
1: <laughs> well, I was yeah, I was just thinking then as you were saying that this is a very timely moment for for doing this because we're in the midst of curriculum reform uh, in schools. We're also kind of in a process or having just c- completed a process of reform in initial teacher education. We're also in a situation where everybody's rethinking how they do education in the current coronavirus um, situation, which I'm probably quite sick of talking about the current situation and all of that. I'm not yes. going to say the new normal because I'm sick of hearing that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, th- there's an awful lot of... of thinking about that going on and i think it would help us all to just stop panicking and get off the wheel and really think about what we're for it's something that i had to do when i made the move from being a classroom-based school teacher to being a pgce lecturer a trainer of teachers i took me a while to get my head around what i was for we are university-based teacher education, PGCE. It's not the only way to become a teacher. It's not everybody's favourite way to become a teacher. If you look at Twitter, we're often, um, we're often the... But
0: the butt of people's jokes. Yeah, the target
1: of some <laughs> quite unnecessary uh, meanness. We're the sort of easy targets for some, some people somewhere, which, which is unfortunate. And in a very timely kind of publication, you set who are our kind of association of of university-based teacher educators, produced a position paper about what we're for. And we both looked at it, didn't we? It's short and to the point, but it's got a lot of really good stuff in it.
0: Yes. And it was kind of manna from, he- from heaven at that point in time, because as Tom mentioned, we're going through curriculum reforms within ITE as well. And it was the kind of birth of our new ITE programme. So this paper was really useful in not only kind of articulating what we're for, um, and they had several sort of big important bods working on this paper and it went through several rounds of reflection and feedback before they came to their final kind of one page version but it was also a really good stimulus for talking about what we're for and what it is that we do and leading into kind of more personal disclosures about our own philosophy for teacher education and teaching and learning and what we do on an individual level.
1: Yeah, so it's early on in the academic year. We've got a new crop of student teachers here. I'm sure there's new crops of student teachers all over the place. So this is a great time for us to just have a little think about what teacher education is about. But also it's perhaps uh, with us talking about our own context, a really nice way to stimulate some thought, whichever part of the education world you currently inhabit. So I suppose the first thing we need to do is have a listen to what the paper says.
0: USET recognises that teaching is a challenging, complex, intellectual and ethical endeavour. Teaching is crucial in improving student learning and in enabling the positive, transformational contribution that education can make to communities and the development of more socially just and sustainable societies. It is these unique qualities that make teaching such an appealing profession.
1: This document sets out USET's vision for high-quality teacher education that values teachers as intellectuals who take an inquiring stance to their work and make meaningful contributions to the professional knowledge base. To achieve this, it is imperative that all teacher education provision builds on the already substantial evidence base about teaching and teacher education. High-quality teacher education draws on a corpus of knowledge embedded in ethical practice, including robust evidence from research, whilst accepting that knowledge is both contested and contestable. It encourages a lifelong commitment to the education profession and pays careful attention to the factors that promote a healthy learning environment for teachers and learners.
0: It is also important to recognise that high quality teaching flourishes within particular contexts that allow for mutually empowering professional relationships and collegiality. Teacher education can cultivate such collegiality through strong professional collaboration amongst all partners. Such collaboration is characterised by shared intellectual responsibility bringing together complementary forms of knowledge and experience. Thus, teacher education is a collective, co-constructed endeavour to which each partner brings unique forms of expertise and perspectives that are subject to change in an ongoing collaborative and dynamic process.
1: USET values teacher education that works within a model of professional collaboration to produce teachers who are competent and confident professionals who recognise and understand that educating is a professional, thoughtful and intellectual endeavour. They learn from research, direct experience, their peers and other sources of knowledge.
0: Epistemic agents who act as independent thinkers, recognising that knowledge, policy and practice are contestable, provisional and contingent. As such, teachers search for theories and research that can underpin, challenge or illuminate their practice. They're able to analyse and interrogate evidence and arguments, drawing critically and self-critically from a wide range of evidence to make informed decisions in the course of their practice. Able to engage in inquiry-rich practice and have a predisposition to be continually intellectually curious about their work and the capacity to be innovative, creative and receptive to new ideas emerging from their individual or collaborative practitioner inquiries.
1: Responsible professionals who embody high standards of professional ethics. They act with integrity and recognise the social responsibilities of education working towards a socially just and sustainable world. Universities are well placed to support the realisation of these characteristics. They offer spaces to come together to think, reflect, critique, analyse and explore ideas and create new research. By so doing, they provide a safe environment in which to ask challenging and open questions, provide reasoned solutions based on robust evidence, and to test the authenticity of their own claims and of those made by others.
0: Furthermore, universities have a civic duty to extend and develop knowledge without the constraints or limitations of imposed agendas or motives. It is precisely these responsibilities that give universities an inimitable role in teacher education that goes beyond the training of teachers, but sees teacher education as a multidisciplinary and collaborative field of inquiry and a source of knowledge generation that fulfills a pressing and fundamental need to society. All of this leads to the development of a teaching profession that is able to shape the best quality education for all.
1: So there's the paper from USET, which, as we said, we we thought was really interesting. And we thought it was so interesting that we would grab a couple of colleagues and have a discussion about it.
0: Yeah, um, we need to chew over it with them and, and get some perspective. So what you'll hear next, played one after the other, is two of our colleagues, one from primary, one from secondary. So the first voice you'll hear is Jordan Allers, who is Programme Director for the BA Primary with QTS programme.
1: And that will be followed by Dr Judith Neen, who's the programme leader for PGCE Secondary English.
0: Okay, welcome, Jordan. It's really good to have you. I'm going to start off by asking quite a big question. Now, the paper that we're looking at obviously looks very specifically at the kind of values and vision for um, initial teacher education. But I wanted to ask you, as a graduate yourself, what do you think university is for
2: yeah, thanks, Aman. Thanks, Tom, for having me on. Good question. And, and funny enough, in our modular studies this year with um, the, the course I, I predominantly work with, you know, we did have a discussion about the purpose of university. And it's funny that I think that very much depends on what lens you're viewing it through. Um, for myself, and I see this kind of year in, year out with cohorts of students. I think it's a conduit. I think universities are ideally placed to provide a platform or an opportunity for kind of self-discovery for personal growth for you know bolt on academia of course you know earning qualifications and degrees Um, but for me it resonates around this idea of being a conduit so providing people opportunities whether that be social or um, academic um, and then those opportunities are hopefully a gateway they're a platform for somebody to pursue Um, additional study or sort of professional work uh, later on in life. Um, I know that's kind of a bit cliche to say that, you know, we're producing lifelong learners, but I really see the transformation of, you know, undergraduate students from year one, where they arrive with a certain level of academia, and sometimes a misunderstanding of, you know, how to really interrogate reading and literature and how to apply that in their own discussions. And then, more often than not you fast forward to the graduates and they they're in a much different place than they were to the person when they arrived Um, and whether they go on to pursue a professional avenue or they you know obtain a a job in in kind of you know the public sector or or whatever they surely will use those experiences that they had picked up along the way you know to enable them to, to move forward so I guess for me therein lies that kind of conduit position you know
1: one of the interesting things about our programmes as teacher educators is that we, we don't just inhabit a kind of pure academic sphere, I suppose. We're part of a much bigger and more complex landscape. We're interfacing with the professional world of being a teacher. And those of us who are teacher educators uh, at university, most of us started as teachers in school. So we've transitioned from being a teacher to being a teacher educator in this university sphere. For those of us, uh, those who don't necessarily know how would you describe the role of a teacher educator and how has it been for you finding out kind of what you're for now in this really complex landscape
2: yeah um i mean again i think there's a lot of personal context that comes into play when you think about the role of a a sort of teacher educator um i mean and there's layers you know there's sort of You know curriculum based layers where we have a sort of coherent and consistent framework that we are you know helping student teachers and young teachers and developing teachers you know understand Um, there's issues around professionalism and safeguarding and there's a lot of those sort of logistical things and i think it very much for me comes down to the the sort of the opportunity to i guess ignite a bit of a passion because I mean, it's well documented in the media and, and things like that, that, you know, teaching is not a nine to five job. So I think a big challenge with, you know, being a teacher educator is providing student teachers, I suppose, um, the right sort of mindset, the right skill set to be able to work autonomously, to be able to intrinsically have the motivation to use those, those spaces outside of what would be the working day to their advantage. Uh, and again not that it's expected or required but again uh, a lot of times effective teaching learning in classrooms is taking place because of the you know the professionalism the dedication the commitment of you know all staff that that work in and around schools so i think um, teacher educa- teacher educators have a great opportunity to i guess open up the sort of door into that into that world and and help student teachers better understand you know why um these things are happening and and what the real purpose is going forward and of course that's um making sure every child every pupil has access to the best education possible really
0: you mentioned kind of space there as well for student teachers to uh, grapple with uh, some of the issues that they are experiencing um, witnessing and gaining direct experience of um, whilst on teaching practice and our program is probably not unique actually and there are lots of other programs in our institution and beyond that that have a significant proportion of their programs spent on placement but also coming back to university on a regular basis. And the paper itself talks about universities offering multiple spaces, it specifically says spaces for them to think, for them to reflect, critique, analyse. What do you think that looks like in our our new programme and what do you think are the benefits of students and the profession more widely being able to kind of inhabit those spaces to do those things?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think on our programme specifically, I think we have tried to, I guess, co-construct, um, I guess, a platform or a structure with school partners that allow for genuine research and inquiry genuine reflection in and around student teachers developing practice and of course we have far more kind of roles attached to the teacher training partnership than we ever did before from research champions to um, IT coordinators of course we have mentors senior mentors Um, I think the role of university tutor has changed a little bit where you know we work more with schools you know in terms of I guess, addressing and working through, you know, eventualities, things that, that arise, questions, queries, um, successes and things like that. So I think having those processes and those those roles within the kind of the partnership and giving student teachers bespoke time on on placement to really reflect and, and conduct some inquiry themselves, I think only reflects the way the sector is going anyways. Um, we'll all be aware of this kind of the change in professional standards for teachers and professionals in Wales with you know teachers as researchers. So I think that shining more light on it and providing more of a sort of fixed opportunity was needed and, and I think it you know it's not that it never took place but I think a lot of inquiry um, in and around teachers practice was more implicit. Um, I think teachers have always been doing it, have always been curious have always sought and obtained really unique and innovative, you know, answers to questions they have around their practice and their pupils. But I think now, you know, formalizing that into our daily processes is key. I'm a big believer in technology, you know, offering a platform for these kind of third spaces or these risky conversations. I know the USET paper talks about uni's offering space to come together and, and reflect and critique and talks about safe environments. You know, I think things like simulated learning um, using different platforms, using avatars, uh, doing it synchronously and asynchronously provide those spaces. I also think a lot about, you know, the paper talked about this idea of knowledge being contestable and and contested. And again, I think there's a lot of positive research out there around, um, you know, the idea of a student teacher or a student more broadly in higher education, having a real platform to not just accept, but to challenge. So again, I think that our programme does this well, and I know we can't say that our programme is the only one that does it, um, our IT provision. But I think universities, by and large, offer that opportunity for that kind of contestable learning situation where there's there's to and fro between lecture or teacher, mentor and sort of student
0: Thanks, Jordan. And you've kind of touched on um, an issue that I'd like to delve into in a little bit more detail and just, just uh, press you to express um, your opinions on it a, a bit more. How difficult is it for IT programmes to endorse that this kind of independent thinking, this move towards teachers and, and uh, teacher trainees as epistemic um, agents when they might be at odds perhaps with some of the practices, pedagogies, ethos, curriculum that they're experiencing on school placement. How do we navigate that?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. And I think that that's a topic um, that will be considered for a while to come yet. But for me personally, I think, you know, it's almost this sort of historical construct of hierarchy. You know, we do our best in in all walks of, of university life and, and link to school placements to, I guess, negate there being the existence of this hierarchy, but there fundamentally is, you know. And I think it's the relationships, the sort of the construct of mentor, senior mentor, and then student teacher that almost inherently creates a bit of a barrier for either or both parties to want to truly be open and critical. I know, you know, I've read a lot around um, Francis Langdon. Um, I've talked to both of you in, in other sort of forums before about this idea of professional dissonance. Langdon and Ward 2015 also talk about educative mentoring, this idea of reciprocal uh, relationship between mentor and senior mentor. I think for me, it's, it's, you know, it's how do you, I guess, start off a relationship? We always say the old adage, you only get one first impression. I think we'd make a massive step forward if first impression between all of these different partners. So whether it was university tutor and cohort of students in higher ed or senior mentor, mentor and student teacher on placement, if one of the first things that was established was, you know, the absolute presence, the, you know, the acceptance that please we both need to be honest and open and um, we need to be able to distinguish between personal and professional. You know, we need both need to be able to, you know, contradict and, and interrogate, you know, decisions and processes for the benefit of us both. Um, because again, if we're thinking in an IT context, whatever we do, whether it's in university or with school partners in schools alongside student teachers, our ultimate kind of goal is to improve the provision for learners. So if that's a sort of a shared you know, output, if that's what we're all working towards, then we owe it to ourselves and these pupils to kind of, you know, to explore all opportunities I'd worry of a, of a sort of context where everything was passive and everything was agreeable because I, I can't see us getting the best out of our learners if that's the case. So I think yeah, I think how we initiate relationships between all of these parties linked to higher ed and, you know, and, and school placements on teacher education programs. It's that initial, I guess, setting the bar or establishing the sort of ground rules would would be a good starting point, I think.
0: Thank you, Jordan. I think that probably chimes as well with this uh, capacity that um, you set, sort of aspires for its its teachers to its graduates to have, which is to be able to engage in inquiry rich practice and be curious, but also be receptive to new ideas um, and be willing to change change their mind. I suppose.
2: I mean, on on that, and I was just reflecting as as you were talking there, Emma. You know, I I, I draw on sort of two experiences when I was a teacher in school and then of course uh, more recently now that I'm in higher ed and a lecturer and in both sort of in both I guess examples I found myself stood in front of the cohort whether it was a year six or a year five or a year three classroom of pupils or a cohort of student teachers openly pleading with them to, to challenge what I'm saying and it's funny that the pupils in the class were almost more I guess, willing to, you know, question and query because they know that, that you know, it's all in that safe space of that lesson and it's it's all about the learning objective and, and you know, meeting those learning intentions. But I found that, you know, the adult learners, um, the ones in higher ed were far more reluctant. And then I, I wondered what had I done or not done to, to, you know, inadvertently create that atmosphere. And I think it, it, again, it comes down to this sort of historical construct of role that, you know, they may have seen me as having some sort of power because, you know, I was their lecturer and and they're working towards a degree and they want to do well and have all these aspirations. And then I wonder, you know, when I initially, you know, set my relationship with that group of learners, was I explicit enough? Was I as encouraging as I could have been to say a big part of our relationship is going to be this contestable knowledge that, you know, you are change agents. Um, so please, as we go along our relationship, speak your mind and, and share your thoughts. Because I'm happy to change my opinion, and I'm happy to, to to develop and grow. Equally, I expect that from you.
0: That's really interesting, and 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 I guess just by 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 virtue of it being in existence, this position paper, it, it allows us to be able to articulate some of those core values to our student teachers about what we're for and and how they how we hope to operate with them and what our role is so so hopefully it'll be useful in that vein Okay, so the paper that we're looking at is a position paper that's very specifically looking at initial teacher education and kind of the university's role within that. But we thought we'd kind of zoom out first, Judith, and ask um, a bit of a bigger question. And in your opinion, what do you think university is for?
3: Ah, right, good question. In my own case, it was, it allowed. A specialization, really. I um, my own subject was classics and Latin and Greek and classical studies, and it was an opportunity to specialize and to acquire expertise i think with it within an area so within uh, within an educational field to gain that sort of expertise but also it, it was about um, challenging and questioning things uh, finding out what the perceived body of knowledge was there already but also having the opportunity in a way that you hadn't had in education before really to be more critical about things as well I suppose university is also about taking knowledge forward, so you are, as undergraduates and graduates, you're the next cohort in uh, creating a body of knowledge or the next step in that body of knowledge.
1: And I suppose um, those of us who work on university programmes which have an interface with a professional kind of landscape so i'm thinking about us in teacher education but I, but you know there are others as well we don't always have the perfect relationship, I guess you could you don't have to go far to to find people expressing irritation i guess with with what the university brings to teacher training sometimes or or a sense that there's actually no point to it and and others who feel that it's incredibly important. um i mean what where where do we have what do we have to do i guess to to have that debate and and carve ourselves out a space where where we're seen to be useful and relevant
3: the, I mean the difficulty with teacher education is it's all about collaboration, isn't it? It's, it's all about the relationship between the university and the student and the schools where they're, they're training. And probably at the heart of it is we don't have enough time in order to do that joint planning which is needed so that you have a really collaborative approach to it. I think we're getting better uh, and we're improving at that and certainly within our own programmes, there's been an awful lot more joint planning between the university and the schools. But even so, it's difficult to get colleagues out of school for for obvious reasons. And I think it it all comes down, as it so often does within education, to time and allowing that time for joint understanding of what you're trying to do and, and that joint collaborative
0: planning that's needed. Thanks, Judith. And I guess in any collaborative sort of co-constructed endeavour or collegiate approach you're not always necessarily going to perceive even evidence-based outcomes findings in the same way the paper talks a lot about student teachers capacity to be independent thinkers to be able to acknowledge and recognize that policy and practice is contestable provisional contingent So I guess we just wondered what your thoughts were Judith on how we kind of sensitively but sort of professionally engage in in those sort of critical dialogues and we navigate some of those sort of contentious issues and make sure that our students are able to be independent thinkers and epistemic agents as the paper says.
3: It's a a good phrase isn't it and um, again it's down to the fact that Within a university, we are allowed a certain amount of independence, I think, in tackling subjects. So tackling these areas which are contestable and contested. And it's ensuring that we do do that. It's ensuring that we maintain our independence as a university and uh, ensuring that um, we put these issues as part of the of the curriculum um, but it also requires as I mentioned before uh, a joint conversation going on uh, with schools as well because there's no point in us uh, looking at areas and and encouraging criticality if it comes to nothing when things come to practice if you like an application. Um, so one of the interesting things this year has been the introduction of research champions into our own schools and during the year we realised that these research champions who are supporting the students in school on their research projects are becoming more closely engaged with the students on their assessments and we realised that actually the, the the communications weren't as strong between the research champions and the tutors and that's one of the things that we, we're trying to put right and making sure that there, there is a, a closer communication there between the different parties.
0: How do you foresee that, I mean you might not know this yet, but how do you foresee that improving? What ideas are coming out for next year about how, uh, how we do improve that, that liaison and that dialogue with um, with the research champions in particular?
3: with The research champions have been a, a real bonus of the new programmes that we've got because they are involved in the assessment uh, in a way that schools haven't been before, so the academic assessment. And we've sort of realised, yes, that we need to strengthen those relationships, but in a way it's related to how the, the tutors and the research champions work together. Um, So ensuring that there is more joint conversations going on about the students' work and joint understanding. The research champions are also asking for greater input from the university on things like uh, methods and methodologies and how the students put their proposals together and how they put uh, research questions together. So they're wanting to enhance their own understanding of how we work and and how how the students are working and and to have a a greater involvement. So part of what I'm hoping that we'll do next year is to put those things in place, probably to put online resources in place to support, to better support the research champions, as well as continuing with the, we have twilight sessions and, and regular contact with them as well.
1: One of the things that really grabbed me on the paper was was this uh, mention of spaces, and it says spaces with an S in brackets, not a single space, but potentially multiple spaces that the university creates in order that our student teachers, our university students can come together. I'm thinking there might be colleagues elsewhere in the education landscape, particularly in university, uh, maybe rethinking their own spaces that they provide for students in the light of needing to provide more blended learning currently. So I was just uh, wondering from your point of view what those spaces have looked like for student teachers and what they do for them.
3: That's a really good question. Um, uh, One of the things that we've tried to do with the programme this year is to include more space, if you like, for reflection. And that's included the the reflective models that uh, have been put into place. So to give them a framework for reflecting on their work, uh, their work within school mainly. And that's been very much online and recorded digitally and, and put online. And I'm hoping also that we can possibly do more recording of, of things to put online as well. So even audio recordings, so we've used sort of documentation so far and kept that online. But I think there is a lot of reflection that goes on with our students, say, for example, talking to their, their mentors in school and that reflection we're not very good at capturing at the moment. They do have to record mentor meetings and that, but I don't think it probably captures very well the uh, the good advice and the and the the depth of the conversation that they're having. So I'm hoping that we can look at doing things like having audio recordings of of key points as well. So I think you're right having, you know, thinking more about blended learning opportunities and, and, and digital spaces for recording is really important.
0: And that really chimes with the paper as well. Again, this point that we're trying to produce um, student teachers who are able to analyse and interrogate evidence and arguments, like drawing critically and self critically from a wide range of evidence. And that evidence, you know, a big part of that evidence is their kind of their classroom practice, their lived experience, and and how they work with the mentor to to make sense of that is, is a really important part of the program to capture. It is, I mean, and it's incredibly complex. Uh, The
3: whole business of of teaching, I think it absolutely stuns new uh, teachers when they go into the classroom and they recognise how incredibly complex teaching is they might have observed it everybody will have observed teaching from some perspective but when you actually get up in front of the classroom and you recognize the complexity there's lots of different things going on at the same time and uh, yeah uh, being able to be reflective when you're dealing with such complex uh, information, such complex data, if you like, is, is, is really quite difficult. So so we, we need to do everything we can to, to actually uh, support that process.
1: Dr Judith Neen there and before that you heard Jordan Allers talking about the big picture stuff about university based teacher education which is really important. Uh, It's important for us to kind of understand what makes us distinctive and what we're for in that really complex partnership that we have with schools. It's also important as an individual member of the education profession to understand and reflect on your own philosophy of teaching and learning, which will, to some extent, I guess, differ depending on the age of of the people that you teach, the subject that you specialise in, if you're a subject specialist this is really interesting because this is something we ask the student teachers to do when they're on the PGC. and it's quite a challenging thing to ask them to do very early on and, and their philosophy may be partially formed and may, may be kind of influenced by what they see in school um, but we had some really interesting feedback when we did that uh, last academic year which is that they turned around and said well we don't know what your philosophy is Tom what's your philosophy I don't did, did that <laughs> happen to you it, it was a really interesting one
0: yeah uh, it, did, it didn't happen to me but and I, and I do ask my students to do it but it it really i was just thinking as you were talking there um and and reflecting on what you said at the start about how you might think you've got your philosophy nailed down Mm. and then something will happen or your career will go in a different direction or you'll learn something new and your philosophy will change so i think we are going to listen to some personal philosophies now but I think the important thing to say is that you know this isn't a pressurised thing where if you say it then that's the law Mm. (laughs) it's not fixed.
1: It's also interesting to think I think when they said that to me, I think my initial reaction in my head was, "Well, isn't it obvious? Don't I don't I make my philosophy obvious by don't all I don't? <laughs> don't I live it, darling? And clearly, I don't live it because they clearly didn't. And they, and they said that they didn't really feel they knew what anybody's philosophy was because we hadn't taken the time to explicitly kind of lay it out to them. And that was one of those brilliantly kind of. Uh, you know bubble popping humbling moments that you get as a teacher in the classroom so thanks students for doing that to me last year because what it did is it it, it caused me to take up my recording equipment and trail around the corridors doorstepping my fine colleagues uh, and asking them what their philosophy was for for teaching and learning and education in general so we're going to listen to a selection
2: of those now hi uh, my name is Jordan Allers I'm the program director for the BA on's primary education with QTS here at Cardiff Met I suppose my philosophy is kind of a hybrid of common education philosophy types. So we'll come across teacher-centered philosophies. So I believe that to be one's ethos, their passion, uh, their moral compass, prior experiences, their pedagogy. Um, there are also student-centered philosophy types. Uh, again, I believe that to be uh, pupil's individual and collective needs, their interests, their attitudes, prior learning. And then we have society-centered philosophies, education and cultural expectations, social context of the children, the families, the schools. I think, for me, teachers man- naturally, given the many and varied stimuli, they come across you know things like their initial teacher education training, social influences, peer groups, family, school leadership, school catchment area, government policy, things like that. I think teachers very much form their own hybrid within those common education philosophy types Um, essentially for me learners are all different teachers are all different Uh, so it's a very sort of socialist environment where personalities and and belief systems i guess drive a lot of the relationships that that take place Um, and i think that a teacher's own hybrid of those common education philosophy types i suppose underpins a lot of the work that, that they'll go on to do I often think about equity, so my philosophy is built on equity for all. I know some use the term equality for all, but I think equity really is is key. For example, learners could give be given e- equal access to a resource, but what other factors are at play? I often think about the, the, the sort of analogy, a monkey and a hippo race up a tree. So for me, it's equity underpins my sort of hybrid of those philosophy types and I guess, my relationship with my learners then is the vehicle.
3: Okay, Judith Neen, programme leader for PGCE English. Uh, And my philosophy of teaching, well, first of all, the first thing I tell the students uh, is that there is uh, no right way to go about teaching. I think there probably are plenty of wrong ways, but there is no one right way. And I think that's important because it's, it frees you up to try things out. As teachers, we are passing on the whole body of knowledge, understanding, skills to the next generation, so it's a fantastic job to do. But it's not just about passing that that body of knowledge on. Uh, A body of knowledge sounds like a a very um, static thing, if you like, but a, a body of knowledge is actually Um, and and the understanding and skills is quite an organic thing. Um, So that's where the skills of the teacher come in, in bringing that content to life, in getting students to be critical, to be analytical, to engage with things. I'm Fiona
4: Heath-Diffie and I am the PGCPE programme leader. My personal teaching philosophy, well, I think looking back on my years I have been teaching I think it has come from a place of me in my first couple of years looking at myself teaching hockey to year sevens on a cold pitch with them not wanting to be there and wondering why am I doing this and how can I be doing this better this isn't what I think teaching PE should be about so I, I think my overall philosophy has sort of developed from that challenging sort of question I asked myself to this idea that I want to create situations where children are confident to be active, um, are motivated to want to be there and find something that engages them, that hooks them, whether it be a competitive focus, a creative focus, simply orienteering or going for a run, going to the gym, whatever that may be. And then trying to find ways within teaching to uh, and curriculum time to allow for that range of activities to be exposed to those pupils and i think then underpinning that is making sure the the pedagogy and the the practices that i use whether they are traditional or more progressive always have a central theme of clear content driven focuses that make sense and are um, articulated to the pupils really well but are underpinned by trying to develop their confidence and their motivation to be active And I think this is what really lies at the heart of my personal teaching philosophy. Everything else I do from there can then be hung off that one central point as a starting
5: place. Thinking about my own philosophy of education, I think it started to develop many years ago when I was actually a learner. And as a consequence of that, um, when I look back at me as a learner in the various different phases of my education, be that in school, in college, and then eventually progressing into my first teaching posts. The big thing that I remember, and and if you like, has stayed with me throughout my career, was the fact that I worked with a lot of educationalists who had very, very high standards and very high expectations. And I think that's influenced my current philosophy. And at the moment, I would say my philosophy of education is very much about enabling others to be the best that they can be in everything that they do. So as a leader now in an educational context I feel very much that I'm there for uh, the learners that we work with in the university but I think more than that for the staff that I work with particularly within the School of Education and Social Policy. Um, so it's an. I see it very much more as an enabling role and in enabling them to be the educationalist that they want to be and that striving for excellence that that's my passion it's understanding that my role is enabling others to secure develop and embrace that love of learning and that it's continuous across the life course and I am a big believer in the day that you stop learning is the day that you stop doing what you're doing and although I'm at the stage of my career where, you know, I would be looking at the next phase would be retirement, I still don't feel ready to do that because every day I'm learning, every day I'm faced with a challenge and every day I look at the best way to embrace that challenge and try and help others to resolve that challenge um, and I think it's about creating opportunities to uh, enable people to have the, the courage uh, to take that. Sometimes what can be perceived as a risk for them to take that risk, to be creative, to be innovative, to do things differently and just get that joy out of education and lifelong
0: learning. So you've just heard the personal philosophies of Jordan Allers, who you heard formerly on the programme, and Judith Neen, Dr Judith Neen in fact. We heard Fee Diffie, who is programme leader for PGC Secondary PE. And then you heard our Dean, Julia Longville who often says that when asked, she will always say, uh, or when asked what she does for a living, first and foremost, she says she is a teacher. So it's really great to get all of those perspectives.
1: Yeah, it was really interesting to hear those philosophies, wasn't it, from from those four brave colleagues that uh, came in front of the microphone. What's your philosophy then, Em?
0: I knew you were just going to spring it on Mm, me. I got that look on my face. evil person. Okay, well... I've got to say that the USEP paper was quite useful actually because you read something like that and you go oh, yeah I, I agree with that yeah okay I, I, I think I think the same. So the things that came through in that that really did chime with my personal philosophy were the idea that you will constantly be going through a process of defining and redefining your understanding of good teaching and learning. So One of the kind of key tenets of my philosophy is to make that clear to my students that everything is contested and contestable. And more and more nowadays, I'm thinking that there's a lot of peace and solace to be found in the perspective of a scientist who is always ready and kind of waiting for someone to come along and say, ah, but did you know about this? And to kind of disprove you you know, obviously there are things that we know work well and that we'll repeat time and time again, but there's also a lot, to be found in trying to find out new things and it will give you a lot of career satisfaction so my philosophy is to foster in my student teachers um, a feeling of kind of hunger for finding out new things of looking to literature but also seeing the value in what the kind of craft knowledge and and tacit knowledge that their school mentors and us as ITE tutors have and can impart but that It's up to them to have the agency, as uh, Judith Neen would endorse, to make up their own minds and to question things and to be critical... Uh, to be kindly critical and to engage in critical dialogue whether that be sort of on a reflective level with themselves or in the sort of comfortable hands of a of a trusted colleague so yeah my philosophy is to make sure that students don't see me as any kind of oracle Um, I don't see anything as any kind of oracle really question everything but be open to new ideas and to being kind of maybe disproved and to change change your approach based on new things
1: couldn't agree more with all of those well I suppose I better better do the same thing so student teachers who who hassled me in that session I hope you're listening now because you're now finally going to get your answer well I did give an answer at the time but uh, I'm going to give the answer now publicly and in the podcast I would agree with all of the above I think my sort of signature thing about my teaching has always been that I I like my pupils or the people I teach to always believe that what they've achieved they've they've done it themselves they've found it out themselves or they've they've improved what they've done themselves now I'm always conscious at this moment that i'm starting to tread into kind of dangerous waters of debate here around the sort of teacher-led versus pupil-led stuff which can get really really vitriolic sometimes and and you know you can be you can be mischaracterized when you say things like that that you're the kind of teacher that just wants to kind of cut the pupils loose and sit on your chair and do absolutely nothing while they flounder about And that's not what I'm saying at all. I mean, obviously, there's an awful lot of subtle stuff that goes on when you're teaching where you're kind of directing and you're kind of feeding information and you're giving people the tools that they need in order to do something. But because I come from the music world, that's my my subject, specialism, which I guess, oh, and opening another can of worms here, it, it would be considered a creative subject. It's something where people have to create stuff on their own even if I've been doing an awful lot of secret stuff behind the scenes to make sure that the pupils have the ability to do well, I want them to believe that they did it themselves through their own kind of application and their own thought and that it's the thing that they've produced is theirs and not mine. And even if that means that maybe they never work it out or they don't work it out for a really long time that I did something and and they, they kind of come to Thank me maybe a long time after they've gone. I'm absolutely fine with that, uh, and that includes student teachers. You know, I, I really, really don't want to hear from people I teach. Oh, you know, I couldn't have done it without you. You, it's all from you. You're amazing, kind of thing. I don't actually want them to need me. I want them to think they don't need me. Uh, <laughs> and I want them to, and if that means they think I'm not earning my money, then that's fine. Uh, But I don't want the people I teach to think that they need me in order to do things. I want them to think that they don't need me.
0: Yeah, I'm on board with that. And and I would agree with all of those uh, sentiments. So we've stuck our necks on the line students and former students we've done it and and I've got to say that was off the cuff I I I could quite easily have played into my own sort of uh, neuroses and and tried to kind of map this all out and which you know if that helps you there are different models that you can use to help you kind of lay out your philosophy because there are various different things that feed into it but um you know have a go at just recording it saying it out loud what do you care about what do you value and what is it about your your approach that sort of makes it unique to you I guess
1: because I know you often get your students to write it down is it in 50 words yeah a- and I then do. return to it nearly a year later yes. that would be an interesting thing to do write it down and stick it in a drawer somewhere and, and then get it out and see yeah see
0: yeah absolutely um but yeah final message I guess from me would be that as I said before it's dynamic it's it's ever-changing and it will always be influenced um by the context that you're in and the people that you're that you're rubbing up with.
1: So that's an interesting one for you to, to get going with uh, something about your philosophy of what you do and why you're there so enjoy that let's move on to our short slots shall we
0: yeah let's move on to our short slots okay so I've got one which is something interesting
1: because we've been on holiday we have been on
0: holiday (laughs) um so I'm going to be a bit naughty and I am going to suggest two things so I got invited to a non-education book club at the start of the summer um, with a group of friends who are part of uh, an amateur dramatic group that I belong to.
1: Do such books exist?
0: Uh, Yeah such books do exist. (laughs)
1: Non-education
3: books.
0: I know they are out there Um, and it's one that I never I I would never have chosen myself and it's The Hound of the Baskervilles by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle obviously the the author of the canon of works about Sherlock Holmes um, and Dr Watson and I thoroughly enjoyed it Tom it, it was very interesting I mean I'm not going to go too deep because actually it was, it was great escapism and I really like that kind of crime fiction genre now and I, 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 I definitely like it for documentaries I really like crime documentaries maybe it's a weird part of my personality but I quite like it but I also like the kind of um, supernatural element to it i also like the fact that it was actually a serial um to begin with it was published in the strand magazine so there's a really nice kind of uh Sort of compulsion to read because each each chapter ends on a on a cliffhanger, but also I really like the idea of verbal reasoning or scientific reasoning that comes through in the book. So Sherlock Holmes is trying to deduce, this, you know, the powers of deduction and and trying to figure things out, which in a way is not too far removed from what we're trying to do on a daily basis when we're thinking about our lessons. Yeah. You know, why did this happen? What's the evidence? Um, how can I read between the lines on this? What do I not know? and then you know just some random things that can't be explained and probably should never be explained um so yeah I really enjoyed that and the other book that I've been enjoying is uh, called The Five now because I didn't prep very well for this I can't remember the name of the authoress Uh, it's Millie... Oh, gosh, I'm going to have to get the Google on it. But anyway, I'll tell you the premise. So The, the Five is written by a historian.
1: Hallie Rubenhold.
0: Hallie, not Millie, Hallie <laughs> Rubenhold. Um, it actually won the, I think it's the Bailey Gifford Prize for nonfiction. Uh, she's a historian and it takes a look at the five victims, female victims, of Jack the Ripper, and what she does is she takes a look back and she tries to, using the evidence, the scant evidence that's available from the time, and a lot of which is kind of propaganda that's had a slant put on it by the media at the time, uh, you know, she's highly critical of journalists who were present at inquests because there was a a very strong theory that these five victims I haven't finished yet I should 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 add these five victims were um, prostitutes and a lot of that happened due to kind of perspectives of of women and the law um, that was the laws that were working against women at the time so just found this idea um, and a lot of the critics that have spoken of of, um, Hallie's work have just praised her for going back and just taking another look at history, you know, from a distance. I really enjoy Radio 4's The Long View, where we kind of take a look back at time in history to help shed light on something that's going on in the present. And I think there's a lot of a lot of that going on in the five. So if you're interested in history, if you're interested in looking at female representation and sort of feminist literature then you might want to have a look at the five
1: that's interesting, a lot of historical parallels with that more modern case of the Ipswich killings of sex workers wasn't there? There was a yes. nasty kind of strand of victim blaming in some of the sort of less reputable bits of the press at the time I remember.
0: Yes, yeah absolutely, so the f- I've, I've only read about one of the five so far and that is exactly what Tally proves to have happened to Polly, one of the f- uh, the first victim who uh, yeah, was, was in you know, in the inquest so without ha- having her there to be able to to fight her her own corner was being very much painted as um you know a fallen woman um who maybe um as she says you know that we can infer that maybe she deserved what she got is is what they were trying to perhaps spin it as so yeah take a take a look at those two if you if you so wish that's what i've been enjoying and i guess those obvious parallels uh, you can find with education sometimes it's nice to kind of just sort of diversify your your appetite and your your reading matter
1: yeah definitely good for you especially over the summer when we get our, our little tiny break from <laughs> All things educational and on a similar note um the well-being tips coming from me today and i came back from my my big chunky bit of annual leave yesterday i took three and a half weeks off in a block which was really nice uh, we don't get the six-week holiday in pgc world uh, i got luxury. a few bits, yeah luxury uh, the, i got a few little bits and bobs later in the summer as well the odd week here and there but um taking three and a half weeks off and i deleted all the stuff off my phone you know my email and, you know, Teams and all of that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I also deleted the Twitter app and I can tell you now, listeners, I didn't miss it for a second.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I, I did... Almost the same. I didn't delete the app, but I did have some downtime, some time away from Twitter, and I actually noticed that um, one of our former guests on the program, Dame Rian, <laughs> she uh, she also said the same. She she put a tweet out saying, "I'm I'm off for a bit. I'm uh, I'm I'm having a Twitter detox. I'm just going to have a hiatus and, and leave Twitter alone for a bit." And I've got to say, like you, Tommy, I found it helpful because Twitter does have its own sort of momentum, and it can it can um, be all-encompassing and because of the nature of its format you know these bite-sized have you have you thought about this and what about this and what about this it can put some maybe unconscious pressures um, and maybe some conscious pressures on us to feel like we ought to be sort of in the know 24 7.
1: Yeah definitely it's a great thing but uh, a break can be a very very good thing so um, yeah go delete your Twitter app for a little bit everybody
0: and although it might seem like a cop-out our something to try is an obvious one off the back of this episode and it's, and it's as we said earlier on try uh, having a go at your own personal philosophy uh, for teaching and learning and whether you're the sort of person that writes that down podcasts it, blogs it, whatever format get it out there, have a think about it at least or perhaps talk it through with um, your respected colleagues wherever you are
1: yep so that's the end of that we're done for another episode and uh, we will be back in a fortnight
0: Thank you for listening.
1: That was Emma and Tom's PGC podcast, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. This episode was brought to you by the University's Council for the Education of Teachers, Jordan Allers, Dr Judith Neen, Fiona Diffie and Julia Longville. Today's book recommendations from Emma were The Hound of the Baskervilles by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and The Five by Hayley Rubenhold. We're off to delete our Twitter apps for a while. From a sunny Alfresco podcast recording, it's goodbye for now, take care and enjoy teaching.